Hi, this is Steve. When Saturday Night Live premiered in 1975, it was, without question, the hottest, hippest thing on television. But by 1980, many thought its glory days were all in the past. Now, one of their hires that year was a little-known 19-year-old stand-up comic named Eddie Murphy. He came on mid-season as a supporting player and wasn't even officially added to the repertory until January of 1981. But by the end of that year, everyone who watched realized that this was someone very, very special. A few years later, 21-year-old Eddie Murphy began production on his third film. By the time it came out in theaters, Eddie Murphy was 22 and the biggest star in the world. Now, Eddie's first film, 48 Hours, was a surprise hit, and Trading Places was exactly the kind of successful comedy you'd expect from an SNL alum. But Beverly Hills Cop was a star vehicle, and it is just as funny and entertaining today as it was almost 40 years ago. So, if you haven't seen this film, don't take your Chevy Malibu to Rodeo Drive. Direct your web browser to cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream Beverly Hills Cop, along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. Then come back on Friday to listen to John and I discuss what might very well be the archetypal action comedy, Beverly Hills Cop. I did not know what was going on. I was watching the show having fun. I'm still freaked out by it. We must have a sixth sense. I don't know what you teach these fellows, but they're not just regular cops, okay? They're super cops. And the only thing missing on these guys are capes. <laughs> Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California, and one half of the uh, esteemed pairing of The Cinephiles. And Steve, <laughs> Steve, it is time to relax a little bit. We've, we've had some fun here enjoying these movies, and... Um, this is a fun one for us to dive into that I haven't seen in quite some time oh. that I remember loving when I saw it in the movie theaters. Well, the movie we're talking about, you know, we just did our not the last live show, but the previous live show. We talked about 80s comedies, and I think yeah. you and I were both totally blown away by the fact that there are literally hundreds of them. Yes. And it got us excited about the idea. And so we are doing not one, but two back-to-back -back 80s comedies right now. The first of which is one of my all-time favorites, and that is Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, and really walks the line of being a comedy, doesn't it, Steve? I mean, you're watching it now. There are some pretty hardcore moments in this film and some hardcore language and some hardcore situations combined with the very funny moments and the antics that um that axel foley pulls throughout the movie and it walks that line steve it walks that line really really well in a way that a lot of other uh combined action and uh humor films don't 100 percent quite get there without falling into cheesy land i think this is like the origin of mm. the the comedy action movie you know yeah. like the idea that we well and i don't think like one of your favorite films we can't have running scared unless we have Beverly Hills Cop, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. like let's take a comedian and let's put them in the middle of an action movie. <laughs> and it's it's one of these weird balances that just totally seems to work. Do you remember how you first came to Beverly Hills Cop? Yeah, I went and saw it with my folks. I remember that it was, it was 1984. So it was probably, I think, um, what, early in the summer or some, maybe one of these summer movies. Mm -hmm. um, and I was probably 13 years old, so I certainly couldn't go see an R-rated movie by myself. So I went with my dad and my mom. I talked them into it because 
I had seen Eddie on SNL. I, I had known who Eddie was and I was like, please, you got to take me. You got to take me. And my parents, uh, you know, at times would be a little more um, willing to take me to R-rated movies, I would say. And, so, and I was willing to snow them a little bit because they were immigrants and I could kind of trick them a little bit sometimes. <laughs> certain things. It does come in handy. For those of you who are sons and daughters of immigrants, you know it can come in handy in certain moments when they're not aware of the American culture too much. Uh, so, yeah, I tricked them into taking me and we had a really great time. And I just loved this movie and, and fell in love with Eddie Murphy even more so and then started listening to his um, his uh, uh, comedy bits right after that. So, yeah. Now, do you think had you seen 48 Hours and Trading Places? No. 48 Hours I had watched later and Trading Places later on VHS. This was mm. the first one I ever watched uh-huh. in the theaters. And I think it's because my dad really liked the trailer as well and thought it was funny. And so he thought maybe this was a safer one to take me to than 48 Hours, which is really – I don't know if that's a comedy. Like it comes no. real close to not being a comedy to be honest. I think – I mean it is a that, – that, it's funny. We said that you know that Beverly Hills Cop kind of balances it perfectly. Yeah. 48 Hours is really an, a, an action movie. Yeah, with an a, occasional moments of humor. Yeah. yeah, where Eddie gets to be funny some of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, it's, it's funny. And I, I know you're the same way. Saturday Night Live was so important. Oh, me. yeah. Like my, I judged my growing maturity by how late I could stay up on Saturday. Yeah. And so first was, I could stay up to watch The Love Boat and then I could stay up to watch Fantasy Island. Yes. And then I could stay up to watch Saturday Night Live. And so right when I got to the age where I was really watching Saturday Night Live is when Eddie Murphy showed up. Yeah. You know, and so Eddie Murphy is like a fucking God mm-hmm. as far as I was concerned. And I did. I watched 48 hours on probably we were just talking about it probably on Showtime. Mm. I watched Trading Places. I saw it in the theater and saw it a ton. Yeah. So there was no question that I was going to go see. I wasn't going to see Beverly Hills Cop in the theater. And I also think I went with my parents Mm. um, because I was I'm a little older than you, but not quite old enough that I could go see an R rated movie by myself in 84. Right. And it became one of those movies. I couldn't begin to tell you how many times I watched this movie. Wow. I mean, like, I watched this over and over and over and over again, but I also hadn't seen it in a long time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I watched it with my 10-year-old son. Oh, see? Oh, see? Not a bad thing. Parents introducing them to R-rated movies. Well, okay. this, is the, this is the thing. This is actually, you know what his first R-rated movie was? Was also for the cinephiles, and he was much younger. Oh, which was planes, trains, and automobiles. Oh, right. And what I, I said, the reason I yeah. picked that is that it's just it's just the F word. Right, right. Like there's a whole, you know, like his whole monologue at the rental car thing. Oh, yes, yes. You know, yes, yes, yes. and I was like, I don't care if Jax hears the F word. There's no, there was no sexual situations. It's not a violent movie. It's just swear right. words. I don't care about that. This one, I was, it, he's just, he's about to turn 11. Yeah. He's just at this age where it's like, oh, we can start showing him stuff. There was only one scene, which we will get to. Yes. That was not appropriate for him. Right. He didn't want to see it. He left the room and we'll get to what that scene was. Nice. And I just, <laughs> I described some of the things that were happening in it, but he did not actually watch one scene yes. in the film. Um, world waiting for you. Yes. Uh, would you like some, uh, some pre-production? Yeah, let's do it, man. I know I, I've got a couple of things in my head from what I remember, but please, what do you got? The, the story is nuts. Yeah. So it's, it started in 1977. So seven years before the film was actually made. And there are two different stories on where the idea came from. 
Okay. I don't know which one is true. They're probably both true on some level. The first is, of course, this is a Simpson Bruckheimer movie. Yeah. Is Don Simpson is driving through Beverly, Beverly Hills in his old beat up Camaro and gets pulled over by the cops. And that led him to wonder, like, what if a cop drove an old beat up Camaro into Beverly Hills and got pulled over? What would happen? And his idea was that it was a cop from East L.A. That was, oh. the, that was the origin of it. Yeah, of course. There'd be all kinds of stereotypes or, or beliefs about a person like that. Yeah, that makes exactly. sense. Exactly. Yeah. Um, simultaneously, Michael Eisner, who was the head of Paramount at the time, this is before he moved over to Disney, his wife is home in their house in Beverly Hills, thinks she hears some burglars, calls the, the P- Beverly Hills Police Department, who shows up, according to Michael Eisner, in six seconds. Wow. <laughs> And that's what gave him the idea of contrasting two different police departments. Now, I don't know which one of these actually came first or which one really happened or what the origin story is. But needless to say, they call in a guy named Daniel Bach to write the script. And this is a full action movie. Mm -hmm. It's not a comedy. This is an action movie. It was originally written about a cop from Pittsburgh Mm -hmm. named Ellie Axel, who ends up in Beverly Hills. Right. And it just dies. The script dies. Three or four years later, Simpson and Bruckheimer are going in to have a meeting with Jeffrey Katzenberg, who's yeah. also at Paramount. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what what uh, Bruckheimer says is that Don Simpson would always, if they were ever in someone's office, would always secretly read any paperwork he could see on the desk. <laughs> and he saw a stack of scripts there, and Jeffrey Katzenberg was distracted, and he kind of looked over and saw one of them was called I think it was called Beverly Hills Drive or something like that at the time. And he went, that's my project, because it was his idea from three years earlier. Wow. And they had just done um, Flashdance. Right. So suddenly they're on a roll and Katzenberg says, OK, go with it. <laughs> so at this point, Daniel Bach, who wrote the script, gets a call from his agent saying, hey, Paramount just uh, just bought your script. And he's like, what script? Because this is, you know, four years earlier or something. Yeah, right. Or five years earlier. And they go, oh, it's it's Beverly Hills Cop. And his second question is, oh, that's fantastic. Who are they hiring to rewrite me? <laughs> <laughs> because that is how Hollywood works. A clearly seasoned Hollywood writer there. Yeah. And the answer is Daniel Petrie, who comes in, and he adds some of the humor. He changes the name to Axel Ellie from Ellie Axel, okay. who's now from Detroit. And naturally, they went after Al Pacino. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. And then James Caan, Harrison Ford, uh, and they wanted Martin Scorsese to direct the film. Oh, my God. (laughs) Which, at the time, to be honest with you, I know Martin had done Raging Bull and he had done Mean Streets, but he also had done, what, After Hours and Mm -hmm. a couple other, in New York, New York. And so not everything he did was self-important. There was a balance here. And so it would have been interesting to have a guy from New York directing a film about a Detroit cop in Beverly Hills as a kind of fish out of water thing. So that's a fascinating. Well, I mean, you think about yeah, it's Al Pacino in a movie about a cop. Yeah. You know, on a revenge thing. Sure. Martin Scorsese, oh, you know, sense right now, because, of course, he's not going to have like the um, what do you call it? The, the jokes that Eddie does. Right. No. So it's going to be a different approach. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and, but Scorsese turns it down. So then they go after David Cronenberg. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> 
That's um, a whole nother uh, damn movie. <laughs> um, and they sign their lead actor, and the lead actor they sign is Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke. That's yeah, no jokes there. All right, and it's a pay or play for four hundred thousand dollars. Oh, that's nice. And then some scheduling thing happened. I don't quite know why it happened, but they had to pay. Mickey Rourke made four hundred thousand dollars on Beverly Hills Cop. Wow, because they had to pay him. Right, right. And next they go to, and I, my guess is, is that you know who the next actor they bring in is. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, son. Yeah. So it's Sylvester Stallone, and he goes, sure, I'll do it, but I got to rewrite the script. Of course he does. I, I, you know, St- Stallone was Stallone was Edward Norton before Edward Norton was Edward Norton. Stallone had to always rewrite his scripts to make it fit for him. Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes you can't argue with success. Yeah. And sometimes you can't argue with failure. <laughs> it doesn't always work. And so now the character's name changes again to yeah. Axel Cobretti. Oh, of which, of course, he uses later in Cobra. And in this script, Michael Tandino, the character that uh, James Russo plays, yeah. was going to be played by Frank Stallone. And it was going to be his brother. <laughs> of course. Um, his <laughs> brother. Thank you, my brother. And Stallone, and now there's no comedy. The, the comedy is gone. No comedy at all. And, it, and Stallone, you Oscar, come on. His description, he says that the opening of his version of Beverly Hills Cop would have looked like the opening of Saving Private Ryan. Oh my God. <laughs> what? The character of Rosewood was killed halfway through the movie. Of course. Because the cop has to die, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so we can have some more revenge. Rosewood. Yeah. The finale was Axel Cobretti driving a stolen Lamborghini and playing chicken with a freight train. (laughs) Oh, Sly. I love Sly. Love him to pieces, man. (laughs) Man, the man loves it. Hey, look, the 80s were a crazy time. This kind of shit (laughs) now in retrospect seems crazy, but back then was probably like, I can see that. Yes, let's see. I mean, look at the movies that are, we have these huge, ridiculous action movies now. I mean, they're different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're, They're not smaller, you know? Yeah. Um, and and at this point, by the way, so so after Scorsese and Cronenberg have fallen through, yeah, they keep going after Martin Brest. They want Martin Brest to do the movie. They love going in style. Uh, oh, good movie, love that. Which I love that movie too. And he keeps saying, "No, I don't want to do some giant Sylvester Stallone action movie. I don't want to. Do, that doesn't sound like I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it." They keep calling him. They keep calling him. Finally, he goes fine. He pulls out a quarter. He says, I'm going to flip a coin. What? <laughs> and if it's heads, I'll do the fucking movie. I don't know if he said fucking. I just made that part up. <laughs> Tails, don't call me again. Wow. Flips the coin, comes up heads. That quarter is now framed on his wall. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. That is awesome. That and is. At this point, they're mid-casting. So Judge Reinhold was cast. Ronnie Cal- Cox was cast. I'm not sure if John Ashton is cast. Okay. Uh Lisa, I forget her name. Who Eilbacher, plays, yeah. Eilbacher, she's cast. Yeah. All of this is cast. They are like a week away from filming. Wow. The giant Sylvester Stallone action movie. And then the studio goes, this is way too expensive. Yeah. We can't make this. So Bruckheimer and Simpson go back to Stallone and say, listen, we still want to go forward with this movie, but we're going to cut all these action sequences. Oh, <laughs> And Stallone says, thank you, I'm out. Yeah, no shit. And apparently he was very classy about it. He didn't take any money. 
he just said, he said, look, can you let me have all these ideas that I wrote in my version of the script? And they said, sure. And that movie is two years later is Cobra. Yeah. Cobra. <laughs> Ready. Yeah. He's the cure to the disease of crime. Oh, now, God, that film. Now, apparently. Yeah. Simpson and Bruckheimer say they actually wanted Eddie Murphy from the beginning. What? And that Paramount said, no, I don't. That doesn't ring true to me. Yeah. Based on kind of how this went, you know. No offense. I mean, Simpson, before he passed, I mean, how much of what he remembered was could be holed up in a court of law, to be fair. So Bruckheimer, I could see that. Bruckheimer's been a bit. You've never heard anything negative about Bruckheimer not being a square no. shooter. So maybe. Well, it sounds like it sounds like they were a definite odd couple. That, mm-hmm. You know, that's Don Simpson, everyone described as a wild man. Just Absolutely. Totally unpredictable. Always coked up. Yeah. And Bruckheimer was sort of the steadying, calm influence. There's a story, by the way, that uh, when Judge Reinhold was me- t- hanging out with Don Simpson on the set. Oh, God. And Simpson goes, hey, man, come here. I want to show you something. <laughs> Brings him over to his car, opens up the trunk of the car, filled completely with automatic weapons. Oh, my God. Which makes me think of there's a scene in Beverly Hills. Yes. Too. Yes. When he pulls out the trunk. Yes. Yep. Um, we're in the duster. Yes, I remember that scene. It's a great scene. So now it's a week before the movie's supposed to shoot. Jesus, we've we have no script because we just threw out all the action. Yeah, or a lot of the action. We have no lead, and Simpson and Bruckheimer just disappear for a couple of days, and then they come back and say we have Eddie Murphy. Wow, rewrite the script on the fly. <laughs> Uh, and they were rewriting. It sounds like Martin Brass is basically up all night, taking different versions of the script and rewriting them and cobbling it together and trying to make it all work. Like, and and yet it also sounds like it was a really fun shoot. Like it doesn't. It sounds like people got along. Yeah. You know, liked each other. Yeah. And not only that, the budget for the film was fourteen million, of which four million went to Eddie Murphy. By the way, good God. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, when you have to go after a dude three days before you shoot. Sure, <laughs> you could jack up the price. Yeah. But they brought it in for $13 million. They brought it in a million dollars under budget. Wow. I, You know, it's funny. The only other Martin Brest we've done is uh, Midnight Run. Yes, Midnight Run. And I like him a lot. He's one of those people who I really wish we had had more films from. Well, he's a hit or miss filmmaker, though, isn't he? Because, I mean, you've got Beverly Hills Cop, but then you've also got Spies Like Us, which is pretty terrible. Yeah. And then sent of I know there are people just got upset. I know there are people who love that movie. I respect your love of that movie, but that's objectively, in my opinion, a terrible. But then you have sent of a woman, but then you have Meet Joe Black. Uh, so it's just and, and Josh and Sam, which wasn't that great as well. And then and then Geely, which is yeah. the end of Martin Brest as a director. So which I never saw. I mean, my understanding is they took it out of his hands and just. But who knows? Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Story. But still, it's oh, yeah, yeah, that's a rough one. But yeah, but I mean, there are. Some really good ones. He's he's like Martin Campbell. Like when Martin mm. Campbell's dialed in, you get a great movie or a good to great movie. When he's not dialed in and the material isn't that great, it is not a good movie. Like that Green Lantern film versus mm-hmm. like The Foreigner or his James Bond films. You know, so it's just you just certain directors are like that. You know, things have to work all around for it to come out good. Hundred. Well, and this and again, it goes to just the ridiculous fragility of film. It's yeah. just, it's a really hard thing you know, to do right. Yeah. Uh, you know, Steve, I've crossed some kind of line recently where I'm starting to like, I don't know if I'm just getting softer or more docile, but I'm starting to be more understanding at times of 
situations like this. And cause there's so much that's out of your control uh, when you're a director, yeah. when you're a writer, when you're an actor, when you're a producer, you're just trying to hope it all works together. And the odds of it not working are much more higher than the odds of it working. No matter who's involved. You know? Absolutely. Well, and, and this is what, what I can tell you from editing mm. is that mm. it, it never cool. works. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work. Like the, the idea that you had on the set, like you shoot, you know, the script, it looks great. And you're yeah, even yeah. on the set and the shots look great. And the actors are great. And you put it, try to put it together in the editing room. You're like, this doesn't work. Yeah. And then you have to, I mean, I, I know I told it maybe years ago on the cinephiles, but the, the, the story of a friend of a friend who had had an off Broadway play. Have I told you the story? No, no. Yeah. Off Broadway play. And it's, you know, fairly gets, gets well-reviewed. And yeah. then he gets the call that Steven Spielberg wants to meet him. Ooh. So he fly, and this is like the play it opened, you know, six months earlier or something. Yeah, and Spielberg yeah. had seen it and he flies out to LA. And at this point he's in the middle. He's just wrapped photography on directing his first independent film. Hmm. And he goes to Amblin and he goes into Steven Spielberg's office and Spielberg says, you know, I wanted to meet you. I liked your play, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I hear you're making a movie. How's it going? And he goes, listen, I, I got to tell you, I just got into post and I'm looking at the film and it's just, it's a disaster. It doesn't work. It's terrible. I don't know what the fuck I was doing. I just, I, I feel like I've ruined my life. You know, and he's confessing all this to Spielberg and Spielberg says, listen, I've been making movies for, I think at this point it was 40 years, 40 years. I've been making movies. Wow. Every single movie I've ever made feels that way. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings totally true to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, remember we had Sasha Pearl Raver on here a while mm. ago. I can't remember what film we were doing with her or, or a conversation with her. I think it was the, the anniversary one. It was. Yeah. Yeah. And she talked about how she's changed completely her perception of how to criticize movies and look at movies because of her experience writing movies, being on the inside of the game, you know, so it's just fascinating to take a look at that. And I think it doesn't mean that you can't still criticize films, of course, those, of course, but like the other side is a bit more, maybe less of the vitriol, a little bit more of the understanding of it all, you know, depending on the director, obviously, because if it's an asshole female or male director, then you don't need to be as understanding. But if they, if they aren't, and they really do plead, you know, their, their point of view on the whole thing, that's something to be taken into consideration. I mean, I think our job is to analyze and to to discuss yeah, and, yeah. you know, and that does mean criticizing things that we feel they're not working. Right. But I, I totally agree with you. It's not without sympathy. And I'll tell you where I first mm -hmm. learned this lesson. The first person I'm in film school mm -hmm. and there was a movie and I won't go into detail about it, but it was basically a dumb, offensive, sexist joke. Okay. And that was the whole movie was just one joke. One whole joke. That was dumb, I mean, sexist, it, and offensive. It was, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not sure the people who made this film are going to listen to this. It doesn't really matter. Okay, fair, fair. But what I realized was they're make is that them making that movie yeah. was just as hard as every other movie. Yeah. yeah. Making a shitty movie is still really fucking hard. Yeah. <laughs> you still have to have locations and actors and schedules and budgets and casting right. and costumes and makeup and editing <laughs> and sound and music and all the same stuff <laughs> to make the shitty movie. It's really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true. It's true. But needless to say, it's not every movie's the producer, Steve. You know, where you're yeah. doing it on purpose. Like most people want, I think I would say 95% of the directors want to make a good movie, I would imagine. Of course. Um, I, I know we've been digressing all over the place. Yeah, sorry, guys. Sorry. I don't know how you feel about the producers of the movie I love, but did I tell you I just listened to Mel Brooks's autobiography? Oh, no. That he it's reads? Like, yeah. 
oh, had no it, idea. It's own autobiography? Oh, it's yeah. and it's awesome. Okay. I had no idea. I, I mean, I've always loved Mel Brooks. Yeah. He's awesome. He's an amazing human. Oh, yeah. He's so cool. I didn't I knew some of the movies he produced. Right. But I didn't know I knew he produced The Elephant Man. Yes. Um, and I knew that he took his name off a bunch of these movies because he didn't want Mel Brooks's The Elephant Man because it would ruin the film, you know. <laughs> but you know what one I didn't know? I he, And he produced – I didn't realize he produced My Favorite Year. Oh, that's a great – oh, really? That's uh, – that yeah, that works. Of course. Show, shows, of course. Yeah. Of course it is. But how could I have watched that movie over and over again? Yeah. Because his name's not on the movie. Good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other one I didn't know he produced is The Fly. Oh, wow. The Cronenberg one. Yeah. Interesting. Did he no, have his he, name taken off these films so that yes. you'd never see? Oh, He—he's the coolest. I just—I was so impressed with this book. How smart is that? Well, and and so little ego, you yeah. know. And he just—he's just a really good guy. But we've digressed far too long. <laughs> I would like to get into Beverly Hills Cop. What about you? Well, this was a two, this was going to be a one parter, but I think no, we knew, we knew, we knew, we knew. Um, let's go. Uh, oh, we open. Anything else to say? Yeah. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> Um, we, we open in Detroit with Glenn Fry's The Heat Is On. The heat is on, on the street. Which was written for the film, which I didn't realize. By the way, I'm going to start this right now, and I'm going to keep it going through the whole, whether one or two parts. This is the most criminally unsighted soundtrack yes. of the 1980s. This is a great, great soundtrack. It is. It's fantastic. Yeah. And I'll tell you the thought I had, particularly watching it with my kid. Yeah. Watching these opening shots of Detroit was, wow, the world has changed. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, and of course, there's obviously still poverty. There's obviously still different communities and different. But but watching this, I was like, I don't know that my son had ever seen a world that looked like the opening shots in Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. But there's still places that look like that. Sure. Sadly, and places of Detroit that still look like that. Yeah. Well, it's Detroit, kind of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a smart beginning to the movie, too, because if you're going to do two, a fish-out-of-water situation, you got to show where he's coming from and juxtapose it in an extreme way to where he's going. You know. Yep. And, absolutely. And all this, by the way, second unit was shot after they finished principal photography of the mm. film, went back to Detroit to just get all these shots. It's great authenticity. Yeah. And then we end up at a truck <laughs> with Eddie Murphy selling some cigarettes i believe this was the first shot of the film was him in that truck yeah tell me something fella what's going on shit i've been here too long talk to me yeah i've said this before when we do comedies it's very hard because i just want to quote everything that eddie says (laughs) and of course a ton of this is improvised Oh, of course. Yeah. He's a very popular cigarette with the children. You know what this is in here? You know what this is? This is a federal tax stamp. You can't beat that. You can't get no cleaner than that. Talk to me. Tell me something. <laughs> Martin Brest's style, which is great, is we'll do the script. And once we got that, then we can play. Oh, okay. A lot of this is play. Um, I, lo- I love his lines. He's co- trying to sell all these, you know, thousands of cigarettes. He's, these are very popular with the children. <laughs> it's a federal seal. You can't get no cleaner than that. And you can tell that Eddie's making the turn here too. Like he he's no longer the skinny kid from tra- from Forty Eight Hours. Like yeah. for whatever, like two years later, he is growing into his manhood here. And there's more of a commanding presence right off the bat from Eddie, even though he's dressed in a kind of a younger outfit with this with a sleeveless cl- shirt and everything like that. He's still exuding a little more adult, a little more mature than he was in Forty Eight Hours. Well, and the other thing he does, and this is those, uh, I would call them acting around the edges that is really hard, which is he's doing the, 
I am an actor playing a cop who yeah. is playing a character, yeah, yeah. and he doesn't play that character perfectly. Right, right, right. Like, you could see the, the rough edges in his performance as this guy. Well, tell me something, shit. I'm a businessman. I'm going to sit down. Do what you want to do. And they're trying to make a deal to sell these cigarettes, and finally says, okay, let's, let's make a deal. He hands Eddie some money, and Eddie counts it and goes... This is two grand. The deal is for five grand. You don't want this pisses me off. I told my people it's supposed to be five grand here. And look at this shit. They stiffed us. No, nah, they stiffed you because I want my money, man. And as they're arguing about the money, they're way in the background of this alley. We slowly see a cop drive by, come back, pull slowly into the alley through this whole conversation. Yeah. It's a great, great setup. And right in the middle of all of this, we hear. Fuck this. Nice doing business with you, kid. And the cop goes to Eddie, asks for ID, and he says, Oh, officer, you know what just happened a few minutes ago? You ain't gonna believe this shit. Check this out. The truck, it just stopped, man. It just stopped. You got some jumper cables, you give me a jump. Hey, uh, don't I know you from someplace? Nah, man, that ain't me. I'm from Buffalo. (laughs) (laughs) The bad guy goes, let's get the fuck out of here. And you see Eddie reach up and slowly grab hold of the chain that's inside this truck. Yeah. As the scared other henchman in the cab puts the car into gear. And we go into a ridiculous car chase to, as you said, underrated soundtrack, Neutron Dance Man for the Pointer Sisters. Yeah, man. I don't want to take it anymore. I'll just stay behind the door. There are like three or four songs on this soundtrack that had been a part of my cardio workout mix. <laughs> for decades after this movie it's just so good well neutron dance man that'll get your heart rate up that's hell a, yeah it's i'll got take a good that, beat i'll take that over the love actually song any day mm, this was not a big hit it was on a pointer sisters album mm-hmm. it was you know it wasn't the single and martin breast had heard it from before and just remembered it and he had it's interesting you mentioned the soundtrack because I'm sure we've talked about it, the way the studio works. If they have a deal with a music company, they want their music to be on the soundtrack. They didn't want this song on the soundtrack. Martin Bress had a lot of fights to get the music that he wanted on the soundtrack. Wow. This is the kind of car chase that does not exist in today's world. Nope. And I love it. Yeah. Just we're going to take a giant truck and we're going to just drive right through whatever the fuck gets in our way. Yeah. And, and there's a novelty to this uh, uh, chase too, Steve. It's not the hero driving the truck, right? Right. It's the it's the criminal. So he is hanging on for dear life. So already, right from the beginning, it's Eddie Murphy. So you're already attached to him. He's making jokes, which are really funny. Then gets involved in this, and he is along for the ride. There is nothing he is doing that is stopping this truck. So it's just a great sequence uh, to introduce. Eddie and and make him immediately kind of an underdog. So you're gravitating to him subconsciously as an audience. It's a great point. <laughs> but by the way, frankly, there is nothing that's stopping this truck. Yeah, right. Good point. Yeah, <laughs> um, true. And a couple things about it. First thing is, is they replace the bumper on the truck with a huge steel I-beam, you know, a big construction oh, yeah. beam. Yeah. So that it could basically plow through anything. <laughs> that's the first thing. The second thing is that, you know, we talked about 
uh, um, the audio mix in, yeah. in, on the show before yeah. is that you get to pick what what's going to be on top. And in general, like voices are almost always going to be on the top of the mix. Right. In an action sequence like this, well, you can have the effects be on top of the mix and the music underneath, or you can have the music be on top and the effects underneath. Right. Martin Brest wanted the music on top because that's what makes it a comedy. Oh, yeah, that makes because sense. Because it's the Pointer Sisters. It's this right. really fun song. If you had had the music play lower and had, you know, crashes and explosions and all that stuff and engines revving, it would have been more of a serious action sequence mm. than a fun action sequence. That makes sense. Third thing is, for some of it, not the big swings, some of that is Eddie hanging from that chain. <laughs> and what they did is they're driving around, and obviously they're not. he's not in there when they're doing the crazy stunts. Right. But what they did was... Martin Press is on a megaphone and and was calling to Eddie, big turn to the right coming. Big so he knew when to grab on tight cuz he's going to get thrown around a little bit. Yeah. The shot by the way of the truck just crashing through car after car after yeah. car is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And finally the car crashes, the guy, the driver tries to run away, boxes are crashing down cigarette boxes all over this big pile a huge bunch of cops pull up all their guns drawn we hear freeze asshole and there is eddie murphy and the cop says holy we should have known it was you and that's a local cop by the way that they oh cool yeah that's cool uh but this is kind of secretly the james bond intro isn't it like Totally, yeah. Introduce James Bond, and listen. I know some people were probably at the beginning we were talking about, like, oh, this kind of set the action, set the uh, bar for, or what was the foundational movie for the action comedy? I'm sure there are some James Bond fans who are like, well, there was humor in James Bond movies. Yes, there were, but that's not the focus of the movie, right? And and um, there's there, he's he's humor in the situation as opposed to being funny like Eddie was. And this moment here is so, I mean, this whole scene rather is great, very reminiscent of a James Bond movie. You open with an action sequence with the um, hero. And so you can immediately connect to the hero and be involved in the situation. It's great. We're at the police station. Eddie's running up the stairs. And there we get to meet Jeffrey Paul Reiser. I don't understand. I don't have any time for you today. Todd's looking for you. He is really pissed. You know what he said? This is your worst fuck up ever. Personally, I don't think that's true. Still in our lives, ladies and gentlemen, twice now in The Boys and Stranger Things season four, Paul Reiser still doing his thing. This is my first experience with him as far as I know. Yes. Yeah, me too. Um, apparently, so the casting director is uh, Margie Simpkin, who Karen has worked with, by the oh, way. Wow. Nice. Um, and apparently, Paul Reiser was just begging her to come see his stand-up over and over again. It sounds like, and frankly... You know this. This is what you have to do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You, you just constantly be on him. Yeah. 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 And finally, she came in. She refused over and over again. Finally, she came in, saw him, loved him. And so she brought him in for this role, which he doesn't make sense at all. You he know what I mean? Like a Detroit cop at all. You're Nothing right. like a Detroit cop. And yet it's great. Mm-hmm. And again, you, all, you get these, uh, you know, two great comedians who are able to play off each other. You want my advice? No. You know no, what I would do if I was you? No, I don't. Go in there, talk away from me. Jeff, Jeff, right Jeff, get away from me. I'm going to shoot you, all right? There's just so much that I quoted, and one of them is... La, 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 I am not That's listening to Jeffrey, but he's still talking. I am not listening to I you. I really hate when you do that. Then stop then, all right? childish. And then we hear... Is that fucking Foley in here? All right, there's Todd. It's showtime, okay? And there is Inspector Todd. The great Gilbert R. Hill, man. Uh, such a great, great inspector he is. And, and I didn't know 
that he's a Detroit cop. And this is the only thing he ever did. This is the only movies. This franchise is the only movies he ever did. Yeah. Not not only is he detective, but he was a famous detective. Like he solved the Atlanta child murder serial killer case. That's crazy. Like he's a real serious. And and he, yeah. they brought him like uh, Martin Brest met him and said, hey, do you want to read for this part? And apparently the first time he read it, he was terrible. <laughs> and the second time he read it, he was terrible. And Martin, I think with him, just kept doing it with him. And he got yeah. better and better every single time. And when he cast him, Gilbert Hill was like, you're not going to cast me in a movie. Like, you're nuts. You're never going to do it. And he did cast him. And Gilbert Hill was apparently, like, really moved and said, wow. I promise you I will not let you down. Wow. And just worked on it and worked on it. And not only is he, do I think he's amazing. Yeah. I, but I think that he set the standard for something that would become a cliche. Yes, right. The, the the black chief of police. Yes, the yep. black uh, captain. Yes, absolutely. Which if you watch National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon is all through that. It's yep. a parody, which is hilarious. Yeah. And I think he's the best one. I mean, I, you right. know. Well, I mean, the one in 48 hours is pretty good. Like they're mm. both kind of good in different That's ways, true. but they do become the standard of which to make. And right. he's the one that appears in Loaded Weapon, which is really funny. But yeah, it's so funny, this guy, Gilbert Hill, because he ran for mayor against Kwame Kilpatrick there in Detroit. He became the chief of police in Detroit. He was a councilman in, in Detroit. So this guy did a lot of things with his life. But most people probably know him for, for fucking Beverly Hills Cop, which is kind yeah. of crazy. He is to police captains what I think uh, – what's his name from uh, Full Metal Jacket is to drill sergeants. Oh, Arlie Ermey, yeah. Arlie Ermey, yeah. It's it's that they're, – they're both really are those things. Yeah, yeah. And come in and bring this incredible authenticity and reality to the situation. Totally. And he's just laying into Eddie Murphy. The mayor called the chief. The chief called the deputy chief. The deputy chief just chewed my ass out. You see, I don't have any bit of it left, don't you? <laughs> oh, man. He's so good here, Steve, because look, he, you know, you and I both know the best play, way to play comedy is straight. And he's yeah. playing it straight. The way that he said, I ain't got any ass left. I mean, in the middle of berating Foley, he drops that nugget of humor, and it's brilliant. He's so good. Well, and and, and the thing, too, uh, Martin Bress said, so do you, you know, as a cop, do you yell a lot? And he said, I never yell. I never raise my voice, ever. Yeah. <laughs> so this is like the opposite of who this guy actually is. Yeah. Um, and then I love Paul Reiser butts in. I'm trying to tell you. Jeffrey, this is none of your fucking business. This is not my locker. That's a, I love that. I've used that before in certain <laughs> moments just out of memory because it's such a brilliant line. Oh, this is not my locker. And just walk off. It's brilliant. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and then this line is key. He says, you're a good cop. You got great retention, but you don't know every fucking thing. And I'm tired of taking the heat for your ass. One more time, you're out on the street. I think this is a great... Two things happen in this scene, right? And, and we're taking our time, but this two things happen. One, storyline-wise, this is a deceptively smart move because you're like, why would the police break up a bust? Oh, because Axel didn't tell them that he was going undercover yes. on this thing. So smart screenwriting there, 100% to explain why this all happened. And it makes sense. And, and then the second thing, I think, is the is you have this quiet moment of an older black cop to a younger black cop in Detroit, right? Giving him some advice. What that, say, he's like, you're a great, you're a good cop, you know, but sometimes your instincts, man, you don't know everything. I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to protect you in this job. 
because it's tough for us black men in this job. Mm. And that's kind of working on a subtle level here as he's having the back and forth with Eddie, which I think is great. And I think it highlights the fact that Todd recognizes this guy's got serious talent. Yes. You know, because yes. um, that's key. That's if he didn't, this would be. And, and, and to be clear, like most many cop action movies. Yeah. This is not realistic. <laughs> no, no, no. Of course, not. of course, he'd be fired. Like, come on. But I bet. Um, Todd, uh, but I bet Inspector Todd has had you know got Foley into his thing. Has been mentoring Foley in his department the whole time. So this exchange uh, kind of conveys that there's a previous relationship here, a previous connection with them um, that he can uh, reference when he's having the conversation. The other thing that I think Eddie does so well, and you point out that he's got that stature at this point, yeah, he's yeah. got that confidence, mm-hmm. he's not trying too hard, is one of the things I love is obviously he's super funny when he wants to be funny. When he takes everything away and plays it straight, yeah, yeah, it gives a simple – he has that ability to simply and honestly deliver a line, which yeah. I don't know that he had that in Trading Places or 48 Hours right. because I think he felt the need – I have to be funny. Like I have to deliver. Yeah. So when Todd says – do you understand me? Boss, let me tell you. Do you understand me? Yeah, I understand. Like, it's just straight. Yeah. Which I know it's, like, not a big acting. This isn't, like, an Oscar-winning moment or anything. But I think it's something that he does really, really well. Throughout the movie, there are moments that you catch the true talent that Eddie Murphy as an actor peeking through in certain exchanges. Yep. That are not comedic. And you 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 can be reminded of this, the how great he is in those moments, you know? And why it's a bit of a crime that he does not have an Oscar considering how great he was in dream girls. So, yeah. 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 He was fantastic in that. I, yeah. I don't remember who he was up against or who won that year. Alan fucking Arkin for fucking little miss sunshine. Oh yeah. Bullshit. There's nothing he did in that movie that he didn't do in 45 other movies. Alan Arkin. So yep. hundred percent. Couldn't I'm agree. Put up on older guy here. Yeah. Fuck yeah. that shit. It should have been Eddie. My, but, my, 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 yeah. but we still end the scene with a button, <laughs> which is boss. The chief ain't true at all out. You still got a little ass there. <laughs> so good. So good. Next, uh, he's driving his piece of shit car. Yes. Which is referenced many times in the movie. Uh, one thing about the car is they're having like a production meeting at like some cafe. I, I think they're in L.A. Maybe they're in Detroit. I don't know. And yeah. they see a the perfect beat up old Chevy pull up to this wherever they're sitting yeah martin breast runs out and offers cash to this person to buy this car really like he's like this is the car we want and the guy refused to sell it to him and so then he went to the art department and described the car he had just seen and this is their reproduction of the car that he had seen pull up at this coffee shop wow um the other thing is this is the first time we hear the axel f theme Mm -hmm. Faltermeyer, who done Top Gun? Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes. yes. Well, Top Gun's yeah. Top Gun's after this, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, here, here's what's interesting. I never thought about is he wanted a theme that you could play and play and play over and over again. Mm-hmm. And the two references that Martin Brest had were the Pink Panther and the Third Man. Oh, the Carol Reed, right? The one yeah. Wells, yes. Um, which both have these themes that just play over and over and yeah. over again in the movie. <laughs> to which the point Jackson's by the way halfway through the film going oh my god they're playing that song again <laughs> <laughs> Eddie goes up the stairs to his apartment 
gets to the door, sees that his door is ajar, draws his weapon, moves in, peeks in, then jumps in with his gun drawn. And there is uh, Michael Tandino, James Russo, sitting uh, eating at his kitchen table. <laughs> How you doing? Right. I see you're still breaking in people's houses. What do you expect with that lock? Why don't you buy a real fucking lock for that door, huh? I don't need no lock. I got my pistol. I probably yeah. capping somebody. Martin Bress first saw him at a NYU uh, student film. Oh, that makes sense. And he goes, let me show you something. And he pulls out a bunch of German bearer bonds. Yeah. Which I think later on will end up in a safe in Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> um, sure. And there's this great moment. It's just a nice bit of acting between the two of them where Axel says stolen. And there's a reaction shot from James Russo. Yeah. And then fully regrets say, asking that question. I don't want to hear it. I don't even, I, I'm sorry I even asked. It's just good to see you, man. Yeah, because he's a cop. Yeah. He tells him he'll have to do something about it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There, you know, it was so it's so cool this oh, this scene with them because it it you're not gonna get a lot of time with Russo. So yeah. um you gotta really establish a genuine connection and friendship because this is the impetus for the whole movie. What's gonna his relationship with Tandino and what happens to Tandino is the impetus for the whole movie. So you've gotta make it believable and and you've gotta have the audience buy-in in limited amount of time. And whatever chemistry Russo and Eddie, however they built that thing, it is so believable. Totally. You absolutely accept that they've been known each other a long ass time. And who knows? I don't know if Russo has seen Eddie on stage or been to SNL. I don't know what their relationship was before, but it was so obvious that they had great acting chops, both of them to connect. And there's a sadness to Tandina. It's a sadness yeah. to Russo's performance. Because I mean, Eddie got out of that life of being a criminal and became a cop. We went on the other side. And God knows what those discussions have been like between them over the years that he went and became a cop instead of, you know, staying a bit of a criminal with him. And so they're, they're but they're connecting and they're, just, they're vibing, but you can tell they're Tandino, there's something wrong. You can tell that right on the edges of his acting that there's something he's worried about, you know? Well, and I think they do such a good, I totally know this guy. Yeah. yeah. And, totally, and you've totally. had this friend who yeah. is like, his heart is just totally in the right place. Yeah. He loves you. Your friendship is real. And this guy just won't stop making bad decisions. Right. right. And he knows that he's made. And, oh, the, yeah. and, and I love that we see the bearer bonds. Then we're in a pool hall where he bets a dude a hundred bucks. He can't make a shot and loses the money. And it's yep. so obvious. Like, there you go again. You just yeah. did something stupid, you know, um, and them drinking together. And then we hear this story where the first starts with Tendino saying, hey, I got a great idea. Let's steal a car. Are you serious? I'm a fucking police officer. I can't steal cars no more. And then we hear about that they stole a Cadillac. And it sounds like Axel stole the Cadillac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mikey got arrested. And Mikey did not turn Axel. And he's like, you you, you went to jail for that shit. Why was it jail? It was a state school. Well, state school is jail when you're 15 years old. So 15 years old, Axel steals a car. Mikey goes to jail for it. Yeah. And he goes, how come you didn't tell on me when, when we got caught? And there's this pause and this look. And man, mm-hmm. you've, you've been drunk with a buddy. You know what I mean? When, sure. the, when, the, when the loving words start getting thrown around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when someone puts that sloppy hand on the back of your neck. You know what I mean? Like, you, I know you've been. That probably is you and me in a bar at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> Yo, how come you didn't tell on me when you got caught? Man? How come you tell we're together? You don't know? No. 
because I love you, man. So they're in the scre- they're in the previews for the movie, the screenings of the yeah. movie, because you want to put it, particularly a comedy, you want to put it in front of an audience to see how everything's working. Mm-hmm. Because I love you, man, got a huge laugh. Ooh. And they went, oh, I don't, that's not what I want. Because it's 84, right. and one man saying I love you to another man, and people, you know, with yeah. world's changed a bit. And so they spent a ton of time re-editing this moment. Really? To try to make that laugh go away. Wow. And and what it finally ended up was a bunch of trims, in particular, how long you stayed on James Russo's face after mm. he said that word. Right. Now they have you cut away almost right away. Yeah. And then they go back to this another screening, no laugh. Mm. Well, that's it. You know, we started this conversation talking about making movies is hard. Yeah. That's an example. If there had been, a, yeah, if there, if people had laughed at that moment, it would have really hurt the movie. I agree. And the thing is, and this is what I always tell people when they try to tell me, oh, you know, it was the script or the way they were directed or they, and I, I know that does happen. Sure. But I also believe that good actors can make cheesy dialogue work. And yeah, that scene between them could have easily devolved into cheesiness. Oh, remember when we stole that cat? Like, ha, 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 yeah, we did it. And then you did this, you did that. Whoa. It could feel very, and then you took the blame for me, man. Why'd you do that? Just out of nowhere, having that conversation. Like you haven't had that before a million times. You've been knowing each other this long. You've, you've probably had that conversation already, but you've got to make it feel organic and real. And when you've got the right chemistry and you've got the right actors, that kind of dialogue can work because it could be clumsy exposition or really good um, extra level of understanding what this relationship is and the history of it uh, when it's delivered uh, well by two actors, you know? Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. I could, well, and this is you know the detective works of where did this movie go wrong? Yeah, it's hard. Sometimes it can be very very hard to figure out. Yeah, yeah, true. Needless to say, Mikey's had a few too many, <laughs> which I also think is something that happens a lot. Yes, and Eddie is you know helping him make it up the stairs, and he kind of props him up against the door when they get back to his place, and then he immediately gets hit from behind. That's up. And there is Zach. Jonathan Banks. Yeah, still doing his thing too. Jonathan Banks. You know what's funny? Do you know what the first movie that we ever saw him in for the show? Oh, I don't remember. what He is an airplane. He is the guy at like the range, the, the, you know, checks the radar range. Yes. So this is a few years after that. And what's so funny ah. is you can see the Breaking Bad character. Yes. You know what I mean? Like you could see how fucking dangerous he can be. Yeah, like he is a really he's a really good henchman. In yes, he is. He's all, and he has been for years before he finally got broke through with uh, with Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Mikey is not just scared; he's whimpering, scared. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. He is that drunk, terrified, rapidly sobering up. Yeah. Knows he's gonna die. Zach, there was a whole box full of those things there. I mean, I, I took a couple of them. I didn't think anybody was gonna miss them. I think I'd take them. And I, oh. Shut up. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, shut up. And you have this moment of, oh, he's gonna let him go. Yeah. He says, I swear, if you ever show your face out there again, I won't. Ever. I won't. I won't. I won't. I promise you. I'm sorry. And we go, oh, it's gonna be okay. And then. Yeah. Punches him in the belly and two very quick shots in the back of the head. No dilly dally, no extra lines, nope. no squeal, no nothing. Just boom, boom. Methodical. Yeah. yeah. 
And then we cut to, it's outside, there are cops everywhere. Axel has like a bloody rag at the back of his head. I heard a rumor that you're going to use Rand on this case, and between the two of us, the guy doesn't know the time of day. Don't mess with me now, Axel. It's the first time he's left his desk in 12 years. At least he's had 12 years. Anyway, it's a homicide case, and it belongs to Rand. Now go to the hospital. And then I love this exchange, because this is the first time that Eddie Murphy kind of gets emotional, a little bit emotional. Yeah, yeah. He goes, Hey, look, we're talking about a friend of mine here. Yes, we are, aren't we? And let's take a close look at that. One, a hootlum friend. Two, a professional hit. Three, in a cop's apartment. I think Inspector Todd is amazing in this yeah. moment. Yeah. Just don't do a damn thing. Stay out of this. Well, look, I got some vacation time coming to me. I want to take my vacation now. Stay away from this case, Axel. No, it's just that I feel I need a little vacation, that's all. All right. As soon as you finish at the hospital, you're on vacation. Thank you. But if you decide to butt into this case, it'd be the longest vacation you ever heard of. And that's the end of the movie, because Axel Foley wisely yeah. decides to listen to Inspector Todd. Yeah. You think he... I, I mean, Todd knows him, so it's just, you know, if you wanted to question some of the things in this movie you could question that well well he essentially waved red meat he knows in front of axel he knows axel likes to break the rules doesn't listen to things and this is his friend like you just you know he just i don't know if he knew axel was going to do something or not. so just i have a feeling that he might have known something was going to happen well it, to be clear axel should be fired over and over and oh, over yeah. again oh yeah yeah but this is a movie right Cut to driving through Beverly Hills. Uh, we got Patti LaBelle stirred up. Another great song. I can't sit here while I don't know And this is, by the way, Martin Brest describes this movie as a cross between, and you'll love this, In the Heat of the Night and The Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> that works. That's and this, pulling into Beverly Hills, he describes as this Beverly Hillbillies sequence. Hmm. It's it, what's so funny is this cliche version of Beverly Hills and what it is like to drive through Beverly Hills for the first time. It's actually not a cliche. It's not a cliche for those of us who've lived and Steve is still in L.A. For those of us who've lived in L.A., when we drive through L.A., there are streets just like what you're seeing. And there are moments where you really get just taken up and overwhelmed by it um, because it's so some areas are just so beautiful I know nowadays, maybe not so much, but like there are some areas where you drive through Beverly Hills that are just like gorgeous. The palm trees, the houses that are so rich, the well-manicured lawns, everything just kind of exudes this um, aspirational feeling to them. So, yeah. Well, and the the, the people and the cars and the yeah, yeah, passion yeah. and the right. ridiculousness. I remember I was walking, I was on Rodeo Drive. It was when I first moved to LA. So this is the mid 90s. Mm. And I was with my family and we walked by one, you know, there's these super fancy stores that sell yeah. super fancy things that only super rich people buy. <laughs> and in the window was a set of luggage. I think it was an eight piece set of like alligator skin luggage or something. Yeah. And there was a price tag there. And that price tag, I would make you guess, but it's so ridiculous that I believe it was $185,000 Yeah, for a set of luggage. Wow. <laughs> so like all the silliness that you see, it, it, Beverly Hills is a silly place. It is. A, it it's really a is. Place. <laughs> it's a silly place. Shouldn't go there. Um, and um, they were not allowed to shoot in Beverly Hills very much. Oh, wow. 
because so Beverly Hills is expensive to shoot on. Yes. They weren't very friendly. The city of Beverly Hills was not friendly with this particular production. Hmm. So the vast majority of it, Victor Maitland's house, the art gallery, most of the streets, almost none of this is actually shot in Beverly Hills. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Just the second unit stuff. Okay. Yep. Speaking of which, he pulls up to uh, the hotel. Yeah. That is the Biltmore, which is downtown LA. Yeah, it's not the Beverly Paul. And goes into the front desk, and we overhear the person working the front desk saying they have nothing available. He walks up, asks if they have a reservation for Axel Foley. I'm sorry, I don't see anything under that name. Uh, check Rolling Stone Magazine's Axel Foley. That's what it is. <laughs> this is all improvised. This is all <laughs> Eddie Murphy making stuff up. By the way, Martin Brest didn't want to go into race at all. He wanted there to be no mentions of race. And there are two in the movie that he was just like, this is just too good. I can't not have it. Don't you think I know that if I was some hot shot from out of town that pulled inside here and you guys made a reservation mistake, I'd be the first one to get a room and I'd be upstairs relaxing right now. I love how Eddie Murphy goes off here. Yeah, yeah. And I forgot to use the N-word here, yeah. I'm a small reporter from Rolling Stone magazine that's in town to do an exclusive interview with Michael Jackson. I was going to call the article, Michael Jackson is sitting on top of the world, but now I think I might as well just call it, Michael Jackson can sit on top of the world just as long as he doesn't sit in the Beverly Palm Hotel because his <laughs> is allowed in there. <laughs> and there is a immediate, <laughs> we have to quiet this person down. It seems that we do have a, a last-minute cancellation. It's a suite but uh, I'll only charge you the single room rate. <laughs> he says, what is the regular room rate? Uh, that'll be $235 a night, sir. And there's pause? Yeah. And he goes, fine. <laughs> what do you think Axel Foley's rent on his apartment is in Detroit? Um, maybe 400 a month? Maybe I bet it's I bet it's less than 235 a night. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I bet maybe. Uh, less than $235. Maybe. 1984 <laughs> for a beat-up apartment in Detroit? Um. Yeah, good point. Uh, by the way, I was looking around trying to find what would a fancy hotel room cost in Beverly Hills right now. It's nope. well over a thousand a night. Oh yeah, easy. Oh, yeah, it does a nice little button here where he says, "If Michael call, tell him tell him what room I'm in." There's a scene of him. He's walking down through the streets of Beverly Hills. This is not in Beverly Hills. This is in a shitty neighborhood downtown where they were shooting somewhere else, something else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they just were carrying around these uh, leather reverse outfits where there's one that's like black and red and the other one's yeah. red and black or whatever. Yeah. And they had some palm tree, like some some foliage, foliage that they Ew. put up. So we're in a crappy street. We put up some plants. We have two guys in the leather outfits and make now we're in Beverly Hills and we have a little, you know, Eddie Murphy laugh. And then we walk into an art gallery. Those are the thriller jackets. Oh yeah, totally. Right. And we saw the jackets in the opening scene of De of the Detroit stuff in the big, the opening credits, you see the sleeveless version mm. there in Detroit. And this version is the full uh, sleeves and the pants. So that's why he's laughing at us. These guys are dressed like Michael. Look, Eddie loved taking the piss out of Michael Jackson for a number of years in the 1980s, you know. And so, um, and even talks about it in Raw, you know. Uh, if Michael Jackson was looking for him in the club, he'd be ready to fight him and stuff in a playful way, right? Um, so, yeah, for whatever reason, I mean, I think Eddie owes at least 10% of his uh, net worth to Michael for allowing him to make fun of him as much as he does in stand-ups and in numerous movies. In this art gallery, the first thing we see is this ridiculous art piece of heads spinning on plates with chains. And then we hear, How you all doing today? Hi, I'm fine. My name is Serge, and how can I help you? And there is Bronson Pinchot. Yeah. 
So uh, the casting director had cast him in the Flamingo Kid and brought oh, him yeah, in for this. Yeah. Matt Dillon movie, yeah. Originally, there was this was two people, two guys who worked in the art gallery. Yeah. They both had parts. And Bronson Pinchot was so funny that the other guy's part got smaller and smaller and smaller <laughs> until he basically disappeared completely. Maybe you'll give me your name? My name is Axel Foley. And uh, what is portaining? I didn't understand what you said. Portaining, what it's meaning, regarding. Oh, what's it regarding? So Eddie Murphy was cracking everybody up on the set. Of course. Bronson Pinchot is the only person who could crack Eddie Murphy up. <laughs> wow. So, and this is just them going back and forth. And, and Eddie Murphy keeps breaking up. Martin Brest is having so much, he keeps ruining takes because he keeps laughing so hard. Finally, they put him in another room. They covered him in, in moving blankets to muffle <laughs> his sound. And he's got like a moving blanket in his mouth going, <clears throat> trying not to ruin takes. They shot this in every way because every time they did it, they did it differently. Yeah. And oh, so okay. they have all this improvisational, improvisational, constant yeah. improvisation, and they keep going back. Oh, that was good. Let's go back and get a close up of that. When you say that, oh, I need a reaction to this, and they get in the editing room. It's a total mess. <laughs> like they can't figure out how to. None of it fits together at all. The studio was going like, we need to reshoot this, and oh, wow. finally, the editor. I wish I, I don't have the editor's name in front of him, in front of me, but like they finally figured out a way to make it work. It's so funny. Yeah, it is. And Bronson Pinchot's character is like, talk about a star making performance. Yeah. I think from this, you know, perfect strangers is right yep. around the corner. So it makes sense. That's how you get known. It's ladies and gentlemen, it ain't getting a lot of screen time. It's what you do with the screen time. You do get that can make the difference for sure. And then just the, the beats back and forth of. Don't run into Amy Summers that uh, Mr. Ahmed Foley is here to no, see. Axel Foley. Axel. Ahmed, Ahwell, Axel. Foley is here to see her. And then, like, the assistant, which th this other guy who maybe was the guy who was supposed to be his partner, comes up with his chest exposed. Oh, yeah. Donnie, this is covered this up. It's I'm like sorry. the breast of a dog to scrub for the customer. It's not sexy. It's animal. No, it's not sexy at all. And a, a love that Eddie Murphy knows to not play the funny man in this scene. Yeah, right. Let him be the lead uh, in, in, yeah, because he's carrying the load there, yeah. And maybe, John, do you want an espresso? I make it nice. A nice little with a twist of lemon. It's very nice. You like it. Very nice. We also have like the back and forth about selling this piece. Mm. And and he goes, well, how much does it go for? $130,000. Get the fuck out of here. No, I cannot. It's serious because it's very important piece. Have you ever sold one of these? Sell it yesterday to a collector. Get the fuck no, out of here. I'm serious. I said it myself. All that stuff just cracks me up. Great chemistry. Great. Yeah. And then we meet Jenny, which is Lisa Ilfbacher. Is that how you say Yeah. Ilfbacher. E-I-L-B-A-C-H-E-R. Yeah, um, e yeah Eilbacher. So she was cast when this was a Stallone movie. Mm. And when it was a Stallone movie, she was the love interest. Of course. You of cast course. a black man, she could no longer be the love interest. She has to be a friend. Kids, we didn't do interracial relationships in ho nope. big Hollywood movies until recently. So go back and watch those old movies and see all those black stars. You rarely had a white, if at all, a white yeah. uh, uh, love interest. What's so funny about that, it never occurred to me actually until doing research for this podcast that that was that was the case. I just really? never thought about it. Oh wow! No, I That's... never thought about it. And I love that they're friends. Yeah, yeah, right. Good works. It works. It's so it good. Totally works. Now it seems like a progressive movie that yeah. she wasn't the love interest that she's actually the best friend. But uh, they shouldn't accidentally get credit for their racism. So, hundred uh, percent. 
Yeah. I mean, this is something we I've spoken about with friends for 20, 30 years, friends who are actors yeah. of color, noticing how uh, interracial relationships weren't allowed to be on TV or on, well, maybe on TV, I think occasionally, but certainly not in big major films. I think Pelican Brief is one of the biggest examples because in the movie, in the book, they have a relationship, but the Denzel and Julia weren't allowed to have it be romantic in the movie. And that's that's big when you tell Denzel and Julia they can't be together. Well, and this is what year is that? That ninety or ninety two? I think ninety two. Yeah. So you've heard me talk many times about this play I did, Brothers uh, Cal, mm. and that's yeah. ninety one. Yeah. And the center of that is an interracial relationship, yeah. and it's so funny thinking about it because this whole thing that was this big deal in ninety one when I did that play, it's not a big deal, right? You know, the whole point, the whole conflict of my play w- wouldn't work now. Right. You know, because it, it, and, you know, t- again, talking, if I were to say all this to my son, he'd be like, what are you talking about? Right. Why would anyone care? Yeah. <laughs> Which, of course, is correct. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, he, they come in, they sit down in their office. And this is another example of Eddie Murphy being able to play something totally straight. Yeah. In a great way. I want to talk to you about Mikey. Oh, is he in trouble again? He's dead. The pause he takes here before he tells her, is the difference between a good actor and a comedian. Mm. The pause he, t- and, and you know, I always notice the acting. You, you'll notice the technical yeah. stuff. I always notice the acting. And I love that Martin Bress used this take because Eddie takes a moment before he tells her. And it isn't a self-indulgent moment. It's a legitimate moment between friends. She doesn't know. Shit, I've got to tell her. Yeah, I've got to be the one to tell her. And then he says it and he doesn't go, he's dead. He does it. Very matter-of-factly, like a police officer might, but also does it in a way that's uh, caring and plays on their friendship. So I was really just – I really enjoyed that moment. Those are little moments that stick out that are authentic to me when you're constructing a character. I couldn't agree more. That's what one of the things that impressed me so much watching this time. Mm. And and I think part of what it is that he – is that that is the real Axel Foley. Yes, right. That yeah. person is that Axel Foley is a person capable – of playing all these roles right right and presenting all these things in different situations but then this is the real guy when you strip everything else away you know and if you if you didn't have that you'd have fletch yes right? fletch does all that the jokes and making fun of people and convincing people to do things that they shouldn't be doing and all those kinds of things playing it's all for fun there's no moment of humanity in fletch no. uh, that i can recall but here there is throughout the whole movie no, I think I think you're. To- I, by the way, I love Fletch, and I would yeah. do it at some point. Yeah, there, a, there is no Fletch without Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it is it is so much. And, and B, your point is so well taken because that's all Fletch is. Yeah, right. He's exactly. he's just the show. Yeah, um, as opposed to a show, and which is why I it's funny. I haven't watched Fletch in a long time either. I think my gut is Beverly Hills Cop is will hold up better than Fletch. I think you're right because I saw it two years ago. And she plays it great too, by the way. Yeah. And I'm sure you've had this situation where some heavy shit got dumped on you and then you have to go to work, you know, like I can't deal with the shit right now. And he asked him some questions. He asked him about, we hear this name, Victor Maitland, which is the person that hired uh, who he was working for here. And then she's got to go. And we cut to (laughs) Axel Foley with a flower arrangement Talking to Victor Maitland's receptionist. Uh, well, deliveries are supposed to be left on my desk. Yeah, but he has to get these flowers. It's imperative. I'm going to go up myself, all right? Well, you're not really supposed to go up. Yeah, but floral delivery is my life. I have to take it up. Thank you. 
And he walks up to Victor Maitland's office, tosses the flowers, and there we meet our big bad guy, which is Stephen Burkhoff. Yeah, such a good bad guy, this guy. Such a good bad guy. Yeah. He had been, I, th- I think, a Bond movie, which is where she had first seen him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, right. And he is also, I believe, like a playwright and a what? theater person and a director. Like, he's got his own sort of thing. He is such a compelling bad guy in this movie. Yeah, yeah. He's Once again, this is the thing that works so well about the movie. And you mentioned the casting director earlier. So much credit should be going to her for picking the right actors to play these roles and then immediately imbue a believability to these roles where that could have easily slid into cheesiness or caricature. And they're not. Maitland is legitimately chilling. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and that's the thing that I really enjoy about his performance. You know, it's, he you could tell this guy is not someone you want to be fucking with. Yeah. And of course, the other person is there is Jonathan Banks, which yeah. who Eddie doesn't recognize because he never really saw him. Because he was hitting the back of the head. Exactly. Yeah. And again, this is him playing it totally, totally straight. And what may I ask is your interest in Mr. Tandina? He was my best friend. He came to see me in Detroit a couple of days ago. And a couple hours after he got there, someone killed him. Oh, my God. That's terrible. It's fucked up. I love how he delivers that. All right. Do hope the police have procured some intelligent leads. So I, I think two things. One is I think that he is a fantastic bad guy. I love him yeah. in this movie. I think everything he does in this scene is stupid. Right. Because oh, he, ba- he basically yeah. says, I am the bad guy <laughs> in yeah. this scene. Yeah. He does not play this properly. Well, um, because he, but he also doesn't feel threatened by this guy. Yes. So why should he be? Because I'm sure the best of Beverly Hills have tried to capture him and he's skated by. And in come five guys. And they pick him up with him screaming. Uh, there's a totally deadpan shot of Jonathan Banks that I love. Yeah. Just watching this thing happen. And not only do they escort him from the building they throw him through the plate glass window in the front of the building this is my first negative uh now and watching it retrospect why the hell would they ruin a plate glass window uh of their bosses which would cost him money to replace and then and would also you know cause issues there all day probably for two days to get the window replaced. I don't know what the logic of them throwing it, but it's played well for what happens here in the scene afterwards. Also, Eddie would be all cut up with his fingers and butt and all the glass and stuff. So, it, so it, well, and I'll, take like an odd thing. Yeah. I'll take it a step further. Okay. You are the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. Why would you throw a cop who suspects you of being a bad guy through the play? You basically said, I am the bad guy. Well, he doesn't say he's a cop, so he doesn't know he's a he cop. Does? The, oh, the, maybe you're right. Yeah. He you're doesn't right. know yet. He doesn't know yet. Yeah, yeah. Either way. Yeah, I'm trying to look like an outstanding citizen. You don't throw people through windows. Right. But, <laughs> you maybe, know. but, you know, we find out later the reason they did that was to make it seem as if he was the aggressor and having right. and finding six people to claim that he's the one that threw him, that kicked the window in. Yeah. And, and, and as he is kind of gathering himself in the middle of all the glass, cop car drives up the steps and two very handsome Beverly Hills policemen get out. That's very good looking. Yeah. But this was part of that. This was very on purpose is they wanted the wanted the Beverly Hills cop to all all look like models. Yeah, because let me tell you something right now. They don't. So <laughs> I've been I've had to deal with a couple of cops over 20 years and I, they never look like that. Uh, they find his gun. They, you know, Mirandize him. Yeah, but tell me, so what's the charge? Possession of a concealed weapon and disturbing the peace. Disturbing the peace? I got thrown out of a window. What's the fucking charge for getting pushed out of a moving car, huh? 
jaywalking? This is bullshit. That that made me laugh when I was watching it yesterday. <laughs> that was a good joke. That's a good joke. And, and I love that, that we cut to the back of the police car and there's a pause mm-hmm. of silence where Eddie's just kind of looking around and says, You know, this is the cleanest and nicest police car I've ever been in in my life. This thing's nice in my apartment. And Steve, you know about framing. You know it's important to show framing. And, and how people are uh, positioned in the camera and in, in the in the mm-hmm. frame. This idea of the two cops, Eddie is like small, uh, a little. Yeah. yeah, he looks small compared to the two cops, and that's on purpose because he's in, he's a little bit over his head, so to speak. So you're kind of subconsciously showing to the audience that this guy's a little bit out of his depth, and I love that. And he's still making his joke, making his comments, and whatever. Um, but it's a great way to show because later when he's with Bogomil and he's with Taggart, he's sitting much higher in the back seat and whatever, whenever he's jumping in. So there's just a difference here in how we're first seeing it, uh, Axel in Beverly Hills. Now, I know that these lines probably wouldn't have been here in the Stallone version of the movie, <laughs> but this is where I go. I don't understand like half of like most of Beverly Hills cop is Eddie's interaction with the world of Beverly Hills. Yes. Yeah. And that sense of humor. And I just, it would just be the brooding, dark, scary Stallone guy in yeah. the Stallone version. You know what I mean? I don't know what it would be. Yeah. He, he might make the occasional crack, but yeah, it would be much more different. Yeah. Much more like sarcastic as opposed to almost a little bit like just kind of taking all the madness in of how, what a yeah. difference Beverly Hills is to Detroit. We're in jail, this set. So again, they don't, they, I, they came in under budget, but they were constantly cutting corners and one, they just didn't have a jail set. So all they did was repaint a, a brick wall. They had some uh, bars that were in the truck. They put the bars in front of the camera <laughs> and that's their jail cell. And it works great. I've never been in a cell that had a phone in it. Can I stay for a while? Cause I ordered some pizza. <laughs> this is the last shot of the film. Oh, wow. We're in the very high tech police control room of the Beverly Hills police department. Yeah. They were never allowed in the Beverly Hills Police Department. They don't know what it looks like. Martin Brest is certain it doesn't look like this. Yeah. Would you like to know where the design ideas for this set came from? I would because it seems incredibly inconvenient. <laughs> but yes, it's a ridiculous look. set. It is too audacious. Well, and it's like it's like a control room overlooking like a technological area. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is where it came from. Martin Brest was previously hired to direct a little movie called War Games. Oh, yes. I know this story. I had no idea he was on War Games, and he got fired from it. Yep. I'm not sure if he started shooting. Do you know if he happened, if he actually was was shooting it? He was in the middle. He was in production. I don't know how far along he was in the actual shooting, but he was in production. They were shooting stuff before they replaced him and John Badham came in. Yeah. And one of the things that he was really proud of was his design was the design they came up with for NORAD. Oh yeah, for the NORAD. which is the big control room overlooking a technological area where we had the computers that were taking <laughs> on the world. And so that is what he was thinking about when he went to design the Beverly Hills Police Department. That makes sense. Isn't that funny? Yeah, it's so funny. And there we get to meet Taggart and Rosewood, Judge Reinhold and John Ashton. Yeah, uh, they're the great. Best. Two of the best. So, as I think I said, uh, Judge Reinhold was cast, and he was cast before John Ashton. And then they do a thing, which I'm sure you've had to go through, where they do chemistry reads. Oh, yeah. Which means that you, you've you got some actors you like, but you want to see who works the best with each other. And so they're who's going to work the best with Judge Reinhold, who had already been cast. And 
what happens in auditions, which again, I know you've been through many times is sometimes you just are given sides, which means just the part of the scene you're preparing, but you don't get the whole script. So you have no idea what kind of movie you're in. Yeah. Right. So John Ashton just has a couple of pages of dialogue. He doesn't know what the story is at all. And judge Reinhold really liked John Ashton. (laughs) And he's already been cast. So he goes and spends time. He tells him what the whole movie's about. And <laughs> really? then it wow. hangs out with him. They work the scene together because Judge wanted John Ashton to be the guy that was cast. And then they start improvising on the scene. And a lot of those improvisations are what end up in the movie. Wow. We have six witnesses that say you broke in and started tearing up the place, then jumped out the window. And you guys believe that? What the fuck are you, cops or doormen? We're more likely to believe an important local businessman than a foul-mouthed jerk from out of town. Foul-mouthed? Fuck you, man. (laughs) (laughs) And Taggart steps up to him. Yeah, he does. You watch your mouth. Hey, man, don't square off on me with some bullshit. You want to start some static? Hey, don't push me. Fuck you, man. And Taggart punches Axel Foley in the stomach. Which probably isn't the first time Axel's been punched in the stomach. No. (laughs) Nor will it be the last time. (laughs) No, right. Good point. And immediately we hear, Taggart! And he goes away, goes and talks to Ronnie Cox, Lieutenant Bogomil. Uh, And he comes back and very politely says, Sir, I apologize for striking you. I have no excuse. And Axel's just like, what the fuck is going on? And this is where we hear the key to Beverly Hills. Well, in Beverly Hills, we go strictly by the book. Which, who knows what Beverly Hills cops, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But that is the key to this whole structure is in Beverly Hills, we go by the book. I just got off the phone with an Inspector Todd in Detroit. Does that name ring a bell? (laughs) The look on Axel's face is just great. He's my boss. He tells me you may not be very welcome back there. He says that you're an outstanding young detective. I find that very difficult to believe. But it's true, though. He also says he nearly had to fire you for insubordination. I find that very easy to believe. Ronnie Cox is so good in this movie. Oh, yeah. In both of these movies, I don't, I don't recognize a third Beverly Hills Scott, but in both of yeah. these movies, he is fantastic. Um, and, and, you know, and remember, we did what Deliverance with Ronnie. So, yeah, he's such a good, good actor. And he's the perfect cast here. Again, coming in, he's he's, you know, he's tall, he's thin. He's got the nice, perfect hair. He's got a delivery. He's respectful while also being firm. It's it's great. You know, it's so, so good. Well, what I love, too, is that we have Inspector Todd and Lieutenant Bogomil. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, they are antagonists who are good guys. Yes. Right. Or yeah, 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 right. Exactly. Yes. Like they are in conflict with Axel yes. Foley. Yes, totally. And they're totally different people. Mm-hmm. You know? And, yet, yet yeah, go they ahead. both go by the book. Yes. Yet they both go by the book. Yeah. I think that Inspector Todd and Lieutenant Bogomil could totally get together and have a beer. Yeah. And and be just like really like because and they're both really good cops you know what i mean like and they both would have stories to tell about fucking axel foley and what a pain in the ass he is there's somewhere a script that somebody wrote that was a third beverly hills cop movie with both lieutenant todd and bogomil coming together to, to to save axel in some situation there's somewhere Somebody wrote that. I know it never got greenlit, but I know it's there. I mean, if anyone were ever to make a third Beverly Hills Cop movie, <laughs> which I think would be a great idea, I you know what they should is you should have 
Bogomil, Taggart, yeah. and and uh, Billy all go to Detroit. Oh yeah, that would be a fun idea. <laughs> Better than a theme park idea. That's oh my god. Sure. Anyway, I remember. I so remember going to the movie theater because I love <laughs> I love Beverly Hills Cop, and yeah, I was so man. excited. Yeah, man. And I remember, you know, it's that we've had this conversation about other movies that are just horribly disappointing. I'm just going like, okay, this could be good. Okay, it's uh, yeah. oh, oh, oh. I only saw it that one time in the movie theater. I have very little memory of it. Yeah. There are some movies you should never see again after they've destroyed a franchise for you. And certainly, well, not destroyed it, but certainly tainted it. And Beverly Hills Cop 3 is one of those movies, man. And and you have John Landis and Eddie Murphy. How does this go wrong? Yeah. And it goes oh, horribly wrong. Well, here, here's my memory. And it, it, it saw it a long time ago, but my memory is they got, they completely misunderstood what makes Beverly Hills Cop work. Right. Which is that Beverly Hills Cop works because Axel Foley is funny yeah. in a realistic-ish world. Right. Right. They tried to make the world funny. Yeah. And that ruined it. Yeah. That's why I worry about a fourth one, especially after coming into America 2, which was not uh great but well it's not terrible but it wasn't that good so i i get worried about a fourth one especially because eddie's what in his 60s man i don't know i I mean we got an 80 year old indiana jones coming out (sighs) don't get me started on that bro don't get me started on that and i love by the way the refrain of they keep asking him questions and he keeps saying i'm on vacation until finally now one last time what are you doing i'm on vacation they arrange for bail and just as he's heading out you know, I got to hand it to you guys. If anything, you are extremely polite. Pretty good punch you got there, Taggart. And Jenny has picked him up, put him on bail, and they walk up to her red Mercedes convertible, and he goes, Is this your car? Oh, no, in Beverly Hills, we just take whichever car's closest. <laughs> I think she's great. I think she does such a good job in this movie. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, and she makes a joke about his uh, crappy blue Chevy Nova. What are you driving now? Same crappy blue shabby Nova. <laughs> and this is also where Axel notices that there's beige Ford po- following them. Uh, Rosewood and Taggart drive up to the uh, hotel and park. They're up in the suite. And then he gets on the phone to room service. But listen, I want you to deliver it to this beige Ford that's parked out on Wilshire. Finishes that call. She says, and again, it's the same thing we are talking about the whole time. His switch to be completely straight and honest. How long are you going to stay? I'm going to be in town I find out who killed Mikey. And I'm very seriously considering going down to that warehouse where he worked and checking that place out. Oh, really? And how are you planning on getting in? And he laughs, <laughs> and she imitates his laugh, which I love. And then, in a great shot, we follow a waiter walking across the street with a big tray on his shoulder. Good evening, sir. The hell is that? It's late supper, sir. Compliments on the Axel Foley. Foley? How do you know we were here? Because I let you drive. And then Axel in the hotel walks up to Damon Wayne's. Yeah. This, this is the, I, I think you can cut this scene to uh, all the way to where Damon Wayne's hands him the bananas. Because it is, I mean, that's another element of Eddie's comedy that was a little, that, that he addressed to his credit, you know, recently, uh, the, the homophobia. But this is the, all through the 80s, right, Steve, when you're watching? Because we're going to have a scene later on with the two henchmen there. And the guy's like, yeah, he, he was, his eye was doing this thing. I didn't know if he was coming on to me or not. So why don't you come with me next time? And if he's coming on to you, then I'll knock him out. There's, you know, that, that kind of uh, homophobia that's there. And it's tough to watch in certain movies. Uh, well, in any movie, really, but certainly the 1980s movies that you love, because it does kind of taint them a little bit. So although he's not 
you know, it's not, um, he's not saying that he's gay, but you know what they're going for there. Cause that's not actually how Damon Wayans talks. So, it, it, so first of all, I thought this was a hilarious scene when I saw it in 1984. Oh, sure. Of course. Because that's what we thought was my society to believe that's funny. Well, yeah. Well, and the thing too, again, this is like walking these weird tightropes that we have to walk sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is a, this is a cliche character. Cliche character. Right. Fair point. Yeah. I don't know that it's, it's not a negative character necessarily. He's actually a very nice guy. Yeah. Right. He isn't running. Yeah. He isn't the, the screaming type thing they sometimes did with caricatures of homosexual people in the 1980s. That's but a good the, point. But yeah. the joke is he's gay. You yes. Know, that's what we're laughing that's why he puts at. the voice on. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, you know. We could reference one of your favorite films, Zorro the Gay Blade, right. you know, yeah, and, true. you know, the, but, 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 but by the way, here's how this came about. Originally, it wasn't supposed to be a banana in the tailpipe. It was supposed to be a potato in the tailpipe. Oh, right. and Eddie Murphy was going to go down, sneak into the kitchen of the hotel and steal some potatoes. And that was the scene, but they didn't have the money for the kitchen location. <laughs> So they went, what can we shoot that we have a location for right now? And they came up with, oh, we just need some fruit on a table and a guy in an outfit. And then we can shoot the scene and not have to set up a whole other location. Um, And it was Eddie Murphy's uh, idea to bring in Damon Wayans because he knew him from stand-up. Wow, that makes sense. Yeah. Take this banana. (laughs) We're back out front and... Billy is asking for some extra mayo for a shrimp salad sandwich. But by the way, I could totally go for a shrimp salad sandwich. Sounds delicious. Knock yourself out. And as there, he's talking to the waiter. The waiter sees Eddie behind the car, and there's a little wink, and he stuffs some bananas in the tailpipe. Hmm. The Mercedes pulls away. Billy pulls out, and the car stops. And we go to the warehouse. Jenny helps him get inside. They go inside. They're looking. There's a bunch of art stuff in the warehouse. You find something? Coffee grounds. So? You know what this stuff is used for? Yeah, some people filter hot water through it and drink it. Yeah, I'm going to take this home and filter hot water through it and drink it in the morning. (laughs) 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 And then we hear a noise and two guys uh, bring a big box in. One of the two guys, I had no idea about this, is Chuck Adamson. Do you remember the name Chuck Adamson? No. Who's that? I will give you a clue. Okay. Chuck Adamson was a Chicago cop from 1958 to 1974, and he's best known for chasing down a career criminal named Neil McCauley. Oh, my God. The guy from Midnight Run. Really? Oh, I mean, from Heat. Sorry. Heat. From yeah. Heat. Yes. That who later created Crime oh, Story. Yeah. That is one of the that is the older guy with that box. Oh, my God. How funny. Is it so he's bizarre? the guy saying that stuff? Oh, yeah. Okay. So they unload the box, they get out, and what we see is that in this box was a bunch of German bearer bonds, just like the one Mikey had when he got killed. Right. We're back at the police station, and we hear Rosewood and Taggart getting kind of balled out by the banana in the tailpipe. How could you not notice a man sticking a banana in your tailpipe? Well, he distracted us, sir. And how did he do that? Well, he sent us a late supper, sir. See, this waiter comes over. Billy, he gets deployed. We watched this van that we had seen before pull up in front of this building. Jenny and Axel are watching from the Mercedes. She says that this is a bonded warehouse where stuff goes before it's cleared customs. He tells her to go home and he heads up to this warehouse. He jumps the fence. He's looking around and suddenly there is a security guard. And I love just there's the pause. And then Eddie smiles and goes, how you doing? 
So originally, and this is from the earlier script, yeah. Axel Foley was supposed to sneak in there, steal a forklift, and oh. pretend he was a worker and steal this crate. Right. All of this stuff is, of course, improvised. Hi, do you have a match? There's no smoking in here. I'm not going to smoke. No, I'm going to smoke when I go outside. Thank you very much. And it's cheaper, too, because the forklift and all that stuff would have been harder to shoot. This is just Eddie Murphy talking. Is your supervisor here? Yeah, he's in the office. Can you go get him for me, please? What's the problem? Are you security here? Yeah. Then you're the fucking problem. Go get your supervisor, please. Now. And he flashes his badge. <laughs> and he starts asking questions. And this is the other moment where race was brought up that Martin yeah. Brest hadn't wanted, but ended up it was so good he had to keep it. How can a black man dressed like me just march into your warehouse, walk into the bonded area, and start poking around without anyone asking me any questions whatsoever? <laughs> and again, I mean, Eddie's so brilliant. Listen, listen to me. I do security checks all over the nation. And with the exception of Cleveland, this place has the worst security in the nation. Now, I suggest you guys call your wives because we're going to be here all night. We're going to check the background of each and every crate in this section, starting with this one right here. Rosewood and Taggart sitting in the car. This is all the stuff they had improvised at the audition. You know, it says here that by the time the average American is 50, he's got five pounds of undigested red meat in his bowels. Why are you telling me this? What makes you think I have any interest in that at all? What makes you think I'd be interested in this? So good. So good. By the way, Martin Brest loved Laurel and Hardy. Mm. And that's part of what he's thinking when he casts these guys. And now we have just Eddie going off on the guys at the customs place. It's all really funny. You know, you have a very big mouth, sir. Are you hiding something from me? Is that what you're doing? I bet you that is your Porsche that's parked outside, isn't it? Isn't that your Porsche? Is it? How would you like for me to have the IRS come down here and crawl up your fucking ass with a microscope? Because they'll do it. I've seen them do it. It's not a pretty sight. It's not my Porsche. It's not uh, my Porsche. I don't, I don't know whose it is. And then as he's just getting them to go through paper, he's like, I don't know what y'all think I am. Take me for some kind of fool. Hurry up, quicker. <laughs> Hurry up quicker is something I've said many times. You know, I noticed you've been drinking a lot of coffee lately. <laughs> then there's just that look from Taggart. Well, I think that's why you have a hard time relaxing. <laughs> so good. Th th those moments, you could totally cut them out of the movie. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't affect the yeah. yeah. Never it noticed. It the overall story. You're right, yeah. And they're great. This is what, because, and, but this is why you can't cut them out of the movie. Because we want to love Billy and Taggart. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And this is why we love them, because of these moments. And so that when they come, when they finally come on Axel's side, it has weight to it. And yep. you're actually now caught up in cheering for them, too. Yeah. Yep. Axel gets out of the cab, sneaks up, and jumps into the back seat behind them, scaring them. You're a cocky son of a bitch, aren't you? Look, man, if you're still mad about the banana thing, I'm sorry, all right? I just need a little time to myself. You just yeah. was able to saw the expression on your face when the car conked that. <laughs> yeah, very funny. Lieutenant doctor's two days pay. Which Axel is shocked. Yeah. I mean, he didn't get Dr. Day's pay for destroying half of Detroit with a cigarette truck, you know? By the way, thanks for the sandwich. He meant it as a joke, Billy, like the bananas. Hey, wait a minute. I'm a fellow police officer. I know what it's like to be in a stakeout. When I send that food down to you guys, that was from the heart. Bullshit. Was the food from the heart? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Was it from the heart? I, I've... I don't know. You can't tell with Axel, right? I mean, it's just kind of weird. Um, I think he does understand, but he, I think he was also, I mean, hey, like like people like to say nowadays, both things can be true. Yes. He might have meant it, but he also um, meant it to bust their balls. What do you say 
We all go get something to drink and make up and be friends, huh? Forget it. Okay, fuck it then. I'm gonna go get something to drink though, alright? You guys can try to follow me if you want to do that. But I lost y'all once today, which means I can do this shit again. So why don't you say, you know, we just go get something to drink together. Let's be friends. And they say, they don't drink on dirty on duty. And he says, I, on dirty is a good Freudian slip for the next scene. I found the perfect place. I saw it on the way over here today. It's perfect for you guys. You can go. It's very conservative and you guys will love it. Don't worry. It's nice. Trust me. The trust me is key. Yeah. Yeah. And we cut to the scene that my son did not watch. Oh, yes. Well, I missed out. Like, oh. <laughs> well, listen, he's just turning 11. Okay. I think he'll want to watch this scene real soon. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe. Or maybe not. Yeah. Um, so the st- remember I said how the studio was pressuring for certain kinds of music? Yeah. They wanted Rick James to play in this scene. The stripper, who was apparently a famous stripper in the L.A. area at the time, whose name was Mouse... Oh, she wanted nasty girls. That was her song. Oh, yeah. And Martin Brest chose the stripper in the background of the scene over the studio. <laughs> what is she comfortable with? By the way, he kept watching 48 hours because I think there's a strip club scene in that movie. Yes. Yeah. And he wanted that vibe. So he's like, I want to do this how Walter Hill did it for 48 hours. Makes sense. <laughs> Rosewood and Taggart, they're very uncomfortable. Billy! Billy, you know, you don't have to be embarrassed if your dick gets hard. If your dick is supposed to get hard, see? That's the whole object of this. Taggart's dick is hard, but he won't let you know because he's the boss. The boss dick got to stay limp, right? See, I ain't on duty, so my dick can be hard. This is what Judge Reinhold described Eddie Murphy as. He described him as a comedy god. <laughs> That's what he said. He said that he could improvise the scene 10 different ways and always hit every single plot point and always bring the scene back where it needed to be in the time it needed to get there, yeah. doing it differently every single time. Yeah. <sighs> Those are the, that's why they're gods, because yeah. you, you can't think as quickly as they can, and you're just marveling at their ability to think as quickly as they do in, in these uh, situations, on all sets. And we won't see nine-tenths of what they create on oh, yeah. sets. That's the crazy part of it. What do you think? Coffee ground. Yeah. So? You guys don't know nothing about nothing, do you? You just got your badges and your guns and you're on the job, right? Make sure we get the right drinks because if I drink club soda, I'll throw up. Eddie, as they're talking, notices two scummy looking guys in trench coats walk into this place. Yeah. And from this point forward, you see a completely different Axel Foley, I think. Yeah. Dagger. See that guy over there in the black coat? Black jacket. Yeah. Well, it's June. Don't you think it's kind of hot for a long black leather coat? And I love how John Ashton plays it, too. Yeah. Like, you could see, and I like that that Axel recognizes in Taggart a real cop. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like the, Taggart is going to know how to have my back on this. Yeah. Billy has no idea what's going on. Taggart's a veteran cop. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas Billy, Billy has, I think Billy has just Still moved up to detective. Yeah, I think he just got paired with Taggart. I bet Taggart wasn't happy about it. Yeah, but he's making the most of it because he's a good guy at heart. So he tells Taggart to cover the guy at the bar. No bullshit this time. And again, the look from Eddie Murphy is so serious and straight and clear at this moment. And Taggart goes over towards the bar. And then Axel gets up asking, acting drunk and goes, Philip, it's time to jam. Hey, 
And I totally think he's channeling Bill Cosby. Oh, yeah, totally. You can hear it right on the edges, yeah. right? Yeah. It's totally. And of course, Eddie Murphy does a great Bill Cosby impression. Phil! What's wrong, man? What's all the get hostility, back, Phil? Get back, man. What you doing with all this gun, man? Get and the back. guy goes to push Eddie away. He disarms him, two elbows to the face, flips him. And in the next moment, Taggart has his gun to the other guy's head and says, Please, move and I'll kill you. Yeah, I mean, like, not even a a question. He just yeah. throws, puts that gun and says, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> and then Rosewood runs up a moment too late. Don't move! Turn over! Way to go, Rosewood. You're some kind of cop, you know that? Sorry for the disturbance, folks. Everything's under control. Yeah! And as people applaud, Eddie Murphy flashes the OK symbol. Hmm which is in so many trailers and publicity stills oh, yeah. used over and over again. We're in the police station. <laughs> Bogomil wants an explanation. Sir, before you chastise these two officers, I think it's something you should know. So they've been shooting a lot. And Eddie, you know, he's the star of the movie. He's in basically every single scene. He was yeah. exhausted. Yeah. According to Martin Brest, Eddie did not drink coffee. And he was so exhausted that he drank a cup of coffee. And oh. the result is the super cop story. The only reason that they were at a strip bar is because they were tailing me and I went to this place. Now, these two officers were sitting outside wondering what I was doing. I wasn't having a good time. I'm into things like that. It was so funny that, again, Martin Bress is breaking and ruining takes. Judge Reinhold is ruining takes. John Ashton is ruining takes. Eddie Murphy is just on fire. And the only reason that they came in was because they saw two suspicious-looking gentlemen with bulges in their jackets going into the place. Well, it turns out that these guys were going to commit a robbery, sir. These men watched them, waited for them to make their move, and then they foiled a crime. If you watch Judge Reinhold, his hand is in his pocket because he is pinching his thigh as hard as he can to not laugh. And if you watch John Ashton, he's breaking as, as it's going. I did not know what was going on. I was watching the show having fun. I'm still freaked out by it. You must have the six senses. I don't know what you teach these fellows, but they're not just regular cops, okay? They're super cops. And the only thing missing on these guys are capes. <laughs> that speech is so good. It is. And there's a great, great reaction from Ronnie Cox. Mm-hmm. And her- here's the deal. Ronnie Cox is such a good actor that he kind of lets, he kind of is like almost believing it. Do you know what he's like? He was like, okay, maybe. And and then he asks, yeah, Taggart and, Bo- and uh, uh, Rosewood what actually happened. Well, and what's great is it's a plant because he asked Taggart who's going to tell the truth, which is something right. that's going to happen at the end of the movie when he isn't going to tell the truth. Right, right. The, and what's interesting is they actually give more credit to Foley. Yeah. You know, th- that Taggart actually did deserve some credit for foiling this crime. Yeah. But he gives all the credit to Foley. And... Ronnie Cox turns to him very formally and says, Detective Foley, we appreciate your assistance, but in the future, if you want to practice law enforcement, I would prefer you did it in Detroit. I understand, sir. I'm sorry. But before I go, I just want you two to know something, all right? That the super cop story was working. Okay? It was working, and you guys just messed it up. Yeah, and Bogomil has that smile on his face, a slight smile to kind of let you know that, yeah, it was, he could have gotten away with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The line, fuck up a perfectly good lie, is something I've said so many times. You fucked up a perfectly good lie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And 
It's the next day. Again, a waiter crosses the street to deliver some food to our new detectives who are going to tail Axel. Um, And then he drives off. They follow him. And we are outside a Beverly Hills mansion, not shot in Beverly Hills. This is in Santa Monica. And there is Axel. And he says, morning, officers. What y'all, the second team? We're the first team. Yeah. We're not going to fall for a banana in the tailpipe. (laughs) So I'm just going to say what this joke is, is they cast a guy who sounds very uh, an african-american actor who sounds very white and then eddie mocks him for how he sounds you're not gonna fall for the banana and the tailpipe (laughs) it should be more natural brother it should flow out like this look man i ain't falling for no banana in my tailpipe he goes well i've seen enough you want a beer or something i've got some stuff in the trunk and he opens up his trunk and he's got a cooler and they say for a man who claims to be on vacation you look a lot like you're on a stakeout stakeout no no i'm picnicking this is like a picnic area And then just as he starts to have his picnic, the gate opens and a big Mercedes pulls out and he goes, well, guys, I've been shooting the shit long enough. Time for me to take in some sights. Excuse me. And he gets in the car. They follow. I love it's a small thing that they do, but I really love it, which he drives pretty fast and they are driving fast to catch up. Then we get to a stoplight. The Mercedes stops. Axel stops behind him. The Ford with the cop stops behind them. The light turns green. The Mercedes goes. Axel doesn't go. He waits, he waits, he waits. And then just, and they're going like, what's he doing? And then just as the light turns red, he floors it, drives through the red light and loses them laughing as he goes. Do you remember John, a couple, a couple of months ago, someone asked us the cinephile short question of how do you show intelligence in a movie? This is showing intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I love it. It's a totally small, you you could have had a guy driving fast Mm -hmm. and lose the car. But this is yeah. being clever. And I love that. And this is throughout all of Beverly Hills Cop. It's also throughout Die Hard. It's also, it's like seeing someone come up with a cool idea of how to do a thing. Yeah. Yeah. We show up at, uh, at this club and Axel pulls up. Here's the thing that happens all the time. I need a transitional shot. So I have to show the establishing shot of the club with Axel pulling up. But there's no content to it. It's not yeah. interesting. And so Martin Bress goes, I have Eddie Murphy. He went, Eddie come up with something interesting <laughs> and so that is where we get the line as he gives the car, the key to the valet he says can you put this in a good spot all this shit happened last time i parked here thank you <laughs> so good and then we go inside there was a whole way that he was going to get to see victor maitland that didn't work and again martin breast goes to eddie murphy yeah. and says eddie in one minute we're going to shoot this scene and you need to come up with something new he says Eddie went away for six seconds and came back and had the whole thing worked out. Wow. But once again, relying on a little bit of homophobia here to to get into that position. So it's a default thing of Eddie's, which Eddie did apologize for. Again, I want to reiterate that. Eddie apologized for that recently and said, you know, it was some of that stuff I did. I didn't – I shouldn't have done. I didn't understand the the scope of it and the effect it could have on people, and I apologize which a lot of comics don't do. A lot of stand-up comics yep. feel there's somehow have a right to joke about whatever. So I think he deserves a lot of credit for a lot of credit because he, because like like Judge Reinhold said, he's a comedy god. Steve, he didn't have to apologize. Yeah, he did, which shows. Well, true and, and you know, it's like, and again, I'm going to say the same thing I said before. When yeah. I saw this movie in 1984, I thought this was absolutely hilarious. Oh yeah, of course. And it, it, it and it, yeah. I don't like. Is it a gay character? Is it a cliche? 
Absolutely, 100%. Mm-hmm. Is the idea of the bit still funny? Yes, I actually think this is a funny idea in the sense of I'm going to this, you know, how am I going to get to talk to this guy? Well, someone says, I'll bring in the message and you give him some ridiculous message that he's not going to want to deliver. Right. I think it's a funny bit. Again, I'm not saying that it's okay to do these kinds of cliches. It certainly wouldn't be today. So Eddie does get past him, walks into this beautiful dining room of some club. There is a ridiculous buffet with giant ice sculptures. Yeah. And there we see again, Jonathan Banks, Zach stands up to step between Eddie and Victor Maitland. Look, guys, don't even try it, okay? Why don't you get the hell out of here, cuz? We're going to use that word cuz a bunch. And Jonathan Banks goes to grab Eddie Murphy and he tosses him over the buffet. And I love that he stands up just sort of covered in food. Yeah, that's some good good, uh, uh, props and makeup there. Yeah. yeah. Victor weighs him down. That's very good, Victor. Could you, like, teach him to roll over and sit and do all that shit, too? And again, Eddie plays this all totally straight. You know, Victor, I know that you're into a lot of crooked shit. And I have a pretty good idea that you had Mikey killed. And when I find out for sure, I'm going to fuck you up real bad. You know what else it is, 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 it makes it work is it's all the silliness that makes him playing these lines straight so strong. Yeah, yeah. Now listen to me, my tough little friend. I don't know from under what stone you crawl or where you get these ridiculous ideas about me. And Eddie Murphy puts his face, his chin in his hands like it's sitting at story time as he it's listens. Great. It's great. That's how you absolutely diffuse somebody. Yeah. But it seems painfully obvious you haven't the slightest fucking idea who you're dealing with. Now, my advice to you is crawl back to your little stone in Detroit before you get squashed. And Eddie is just staring at him as the police come up from behind, grab Eddie Murphy, handcuff him. And the whole time, he's just got that dead-eyed stare at Victor Maitland. Catch you later, Vic. And he says, I think Vic says, I look forward to it. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So great back and forth between them. And you're right, Steve. This is the the, the um, kind of really serious moments work so well we just had a comedic moment to lead us into this situation and of course you can have issues with the comedy in that comedic moment which is totally understandable but that's the kind of thing kind of disarm us for a second and then boom we're back into the seriousness of the bat and he does toss uh john the banks over that buffet and sits down calmly and and you see the two and uh two antagonists um or the two competitors rather the two gladiators here delivering essentially their missives and what's going to propel us into the uh into the back half of the movie here because clearly he can't get rid of axel uh and the fact that he's been twice now been able to get into a place of comfort for him uh is showing his tenacity to victor and victor now turning up the menace when he says to him you if you knew me you clearly uh, would be scared out of your mind because you don't know who you're actually fucking with. And I think there's that's so great the way it works. And Eddie calmly gets arrested and calmly walks out but drops his last kind of shot at him before he goes. So it's a great uh, – um, I almost call this like wrestling final promos between the two bat- uh, two combatants yeah. before they get in the ring and wrestle, uh, which is great. And also one last thing, Steve, I want to th- – I don't know, throw my, I, you know how I am sometimes – 
But the thing um, where he's like, let me tell you something. My, it, it reminded me of Waltz in Godfather. Let me tell mm. you something. My Kraut Mick friend, he doesn't get <laughs> that movie. And I'll tell you why. You know, so it, it's, I like the kind of allusions here to that scene as well. Well, I think it's funny. I hadn't thought about it, but it's a good metaphor because we both have powerful Beverly Hills guys yeah, who are not right. used to having anybody mess with them. Right. Exactly. You know, and, and from, what out of town. from out of town, coming in from out of town and coming into their world. And I think at this moment, it's like the it's it, it's like the uh, all the subterfuge is gone. You know what I mean? Like, yes, it, it's this is the battle. I am coming after you. I am going to stop you. And I think at this moment, it's a good time to end part one of our exploration of Beverly Hills Cop. As always, we'd love to hear your opinions on our Facebook page or on Twitter where you can search for what the fuck is our name? <laughs> <laughs> Please keep that in there. No, no, no. <laughs> it's, I, I don't know how often you have this, things just fly out of your brain. You're on camera oh, way more than me. Bro, all the fucking time. <laughs> Please. Please. It's, uh, honestly, it's remarkable that we ever get it right, <laughs> frankly. But I believe it is Cinema underscore Files on Twitter, Cinephiles Podcast on Instagram. <laughs> you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. Hey, reviews. Why, why aren't people reviewing the show anymore, John? Yeah, come on, guys. Review the show. Give us your five. Give you your two cents. And I know people are discovering our uh, podcast all the time. And we cannot stress enough how much we need your reviews and appreciate your reviews to keep us in people's brains and keep us being a podcast that people suggest to or that these uh, services suggest to people to listen to and, and uh, enjoy. Particular as a podcast that's been around for a while, because it, mm. you might think like, oh, they're established; they don't really need the reviews anymore. And it's it's actually the opposite because when a podcast starts out, the algorithm puts them forward. You know, it's a new podcast, so if it gets a few good reviews, it'll pop it right up to the rankings. Older podcasts, they will get lost. Yes. So, new reviews is what brings us back up when someone does a search search for movies. So please leave your views on Apple Podcasts. Please leave your comments on YouTube. They're always a lot of fun to respond to. If you want to buy or stream Beverly Hills Cop, you can do it on cinephiles.net. I think we've mentioned several different shorts as we've gone along. Yes. We have our cinephile shorts on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where you can also suggest films and participate in other ways. And if you want to reach me, you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram and Enterprise Incidents, where we are now into season three of the original series. Yeah, there's some very good episodes in season three and some less good episodes. In yes. fact, we were recording what I believe is the worst episode of the original series ever in a wow. few days. Nice. Um, John, how would people reach you? You can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok, uh, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, doing a lot of stuff on Twitch there. So go and head on over there. And also uh, my other podcasts, the uh, Top Ten and uh, the Geek Buddies that are out there for you all to enjoy. And my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, look, I know thousands of you listen to us and download us. Would love for you all to get head on over to my YouTube channel as well and Give it a subscribe. We're trying to cross that 25,000 subscribers, Mark. Would really appreciate your help. And we also have our YouTube channel, as Steve said. So go and subscribe to that. Do double duty, for God's sakes. You're getting great content on both those YouTube sites. I 100% endorse this message. Um, <laughs> and I think that's it for this week. We will see you next time for part two of Beverly Hills Cop right here on The Cinephiles. The Cinephiles.